Hi, and welcome to Movie Time. Jason DeRosso with you. And today, Ang Lee joins me to discuss filming the unfilmable, how he got his head around the mystical, allegorical, magic realist novel, Life of Pi and brought it kicking and screaming to the big screen, how he tamed the tiger, as it were. It's one of the best things out over summer, that conversation coming up. Plus, a chat with film scholar Mark Cousins, who's made a series of documentaries called The Story of Film on free-to-air TV here next month. It's a monumental project, and he's drawn some interesting conclusions about movies that matter. It's our last show of the year before our summer series, and you know that also means the Boxing Day Bonanza is around the corner, so I'll give you the heads up on two of the biggest Christmas releases, The Hobbit and Les Miserables, in which Hugh Jackman is in his element, leading an A-list cast with his passionate warble through the muddy, revolutionary streets of 19th century Paris. Who am I? You must be Mr Boggins. No! Can I condemn this man to slavery? You can't come in, you've come to the wrong house. Pretend I do not feel his agony. Please save my family! This innocent who bears my face, who goes to judgment in my place. Who am I? Are there, are there wolves out there? Can I conceal myself forevermore? Wolves? No, that is not a wolf. And I'm not the man I was before. I'm on a lifeboat alone with the tiger. Gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to journey on. Who am I? My name is Bipadil. Who am I? My name is Bilbo Baggins. The Week in Film and a taste of Hugh Jackman's performance in Les Miserables, which is where we kick off movie time this week. Arguably, Les Mis is the second biggest release on Boxing Day, and all that questioning of identity is, of course, part of the story about a kind-hearted convict, played by Jackman, who breaks his parole and refashions himself as a gentleman capitalist, but is forever looking over his shoulder. The man obsessed with bringing him to justice is the dour, blinkered police inspector Javet. Beautiful casting here with an earnest Russell Crowe. And it's the story of these two men, set against the backdrop of a depressed, squalid and increasingly volatile Paris of the 1830s that carves the shape of the movie. There's been a dozen other films inspired by Victor Hugo's 1862 novel, the earliest was an American silent film in 1909. There's also been a TV miniseries just 10 or so years ago with Gerard Depardieu and John Malkovich. And of course, the hit musical on which this film is based, which has been performed continuously these last 20 or so years. It's a cracking story, if you don't know it, one that will astound you for its cruelty, its improbable twists of fate its sudden moments of grace. And what makes this adaptation so special is the emotional intensity. Director Tom Hooper, who did the King's Speech, has made all the performers sing live to camera. They did this with the help of an earpiece and a piano backing track. The orchestral music was added later. And so the singing is not perfect, but it's immediate and it's raw. And some numbers really shine. Oh, 
Anne Hathaway as Fantine, a single mother forced into prostitution to support her child, delivers an amazing one-take version of the lament, I Dreamed a Dream, while Sasha Baron Cohen and Helen Bonham Carter, playing a pair of swindlers who own an inn and look after her child, are memorable with a knees-up, jaunty signature tune. But at two hours and 40 minutes, Les Miserables is a long film, and by the third act, as the barricades go up and a pair of young lovers, played by Amanda Seyfried and Eddie Redmayne, take the limelight from Jackman and Crow, well, you get the feeling Hooper has reached the limits of his vision. The film plateaus. Somehow the dreamy, nightmarish marriage of production designer Eve Stewart's theatrical sets and cinematographer Danny Cohen's wide-angle lenses and jittery camera starts to lose power. But it's far from a failure. It's intense and evocative, a worthwhile spectacle. Les Miserables is rated M, and of course, releasing the day after Christmas. But it will no doubt be in the shadow of what will probably be Boxing Day's biggest film. That is, of course, The Hobbit. Now, for those who felt that Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy was just too concise to do the book's justice, well, you'll like the idea that he's making three films of the one book this time. The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, is the first instalment, and I think it breathes like none of the films in the trilogy did. There's space to be awestruck, to soak in the atmosphere of Tolkien's world, enhanced here by 3D and Jackson's thoughtful layering of foreground, middle ground and background. What is it, precious? What is it? My name is Bilbo Baggins. Bagginses. What is that? Baggins's precious. I'm a hobbit from the Shire. Oh, we like goblinses, bats, and fishes, but we hasn't tried hobbinses before. What I wasn't convinced by is the new 48 frames per second rate. Jackson touts this innovation as an action movie breakthrough, and it brings an increased clarity to the picture, especially the moving shots. There's very little blur. But it's so sharp and real. It's almost banal, a bit like watching a home video on a HD TV. These reservations aside, it's the story that carries the film. An anonymous everyman, or every hobbit if you will, finds the courage to leave behind his comfortable wood-panelled hole in the ground to head on the road with a wizard and a gang of grumpy dwarves on an uncertain and dangerous quest. Martin Freeman is wonderful in the role, playing a kind of dark horse character similar to his one in The Office. He's amiable, unambitious, but surprises everyone, including himself, with a steely determination when the moment calls. The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, is a solid and occasionally inspired start to the Hobbit trilogy. It's rated M and also releases Boxing Day. My name is Pai Patel. I have been in a shipwreck. I am on a lifeboat alone with the tiger. Please send help. Taiwanese-born filmmaker Ang Lee has made an extraordinarily diverse set of films, from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to Brokeback Mountain. But if there's something that links all of them, it's his unique skill with character and emotion. On New Year's Day, his latest film, Life of Pi, releases. It's a 3D, hyper-realist, colour-saturated, kinetic tour de force, based on the Man Booker Prize-winning novel of the same name, Jan Martel. For the most part, it's the story of a young Indian man, the lone survivor of a shipwreck on a lifeboat 
with a Bengali tiger, who in turn is the lone survivor, after a few bloody fights, of a cargo of zoo animals. And it's in this simple two-handed premise of man versus nature, the raw power of one against the intelligence of the other, that the film, like the book, becomes an allegory of the human condition. There is a broader idea circulating in the story, too, about God. And the film is bookended by scenes in Montreal where the hero, as an older man, played by Ifan Khan, recounts this story to an atheist writer, claiming that it has the power to turn him into a believer. Well, I don't know about that. What I do know is that this is captivating cinema. The spectacle of this young man learning to survive with limited supplies while being stalked by a wild animal on a boat only a few metres long, bobbing up and down on the ocean, is visceral and shocking. There are moments of tense standoff. There are sudden, desperate escapes. There are exhilarating breakthroughs. You want to sigh with relief when the young man builds a floating raft connected to the boat via a rope just beyond the reach of the tiger's claws. There are unexpected, wondrous intrusions from the outside world too. Operatic thunderstorms, magnificent flocks of silvery-winged fish that pummel the boat and the two castaways. I won't tell you any more of the story, but it's a standout performance from first-time Indian actor Suraj Sharma that will move you. And the CGI animated Bengali tiger, known as Roger Parker, thanks to a whimsical bit of backstory, is a thing of wonder. The Oscar buzz for this film is thoroughly deserved, and Ang Lee, after that dubious attempt to tell the story of Woodstock in his last movie, is back on fire here with Life of Pi. I caught up with him earlier in the week. This film seems to me to be such a... Uh, an interesting but very difficult sort of project on many levels. You have, a, as your main protagonist, an actor who's a first-time actor. Uh, this is your first film in 3D. Um, you're making an adaptation of what many people called an unfilmable book. Uh, as a film, does it represent your most difficult professional challenge so far? Yes, yes. Not necessarily uh, most difficult physically, but cinematically, yeah. No. Water, particular, I didn't know that. No, that was so difficult. You can imagine, <laughs> you can learn uh, as much as you want about how difficult it is. Uh, still, is harder than you imagine. Um, I mean, there's obviously a lot of CGI effects, but there is real water in this film, and yes. I understand it was yeah. a huge tank. How big was it? Uh, Seventy-five meter by thirty-five meters, um, along and with. It was a tank I sort of invented with a lot of experts because I never seen open oceans portray well, not real water, not CGI water portray well. And this huge tank was built in, in Taichung. Yeah, I don't think I can afford and do anything like that in in Hollywood. So I thought um, my hometown might give me a good help, both financially and labor wise, and also I'm outside of Hollywood. I can be as inventive as I wanted without being bothered. So I took the crew to Taiwan. In terms of being, being bothered by the studio execs? Yeah, or? yeah. No, are you sure? Are we going to spend millions of dollars doing this? Uh, this little, no, it, 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 it takes time to, make, uh, to come to realization how that thing works. It's experimental. And the method will be out of the box, uh, will, will be pretty inventive. So I felt I need that freedom and support from the Taiwanese government and people. Yeah. 
I've read somewhere that you're pretty much a one movie at a time guy. You don't have multiple projects going on in your head at any one time. You like to immerse yourself in the movie you're making. Right. Um, and I think you were on board with this movie for about four years. Yeah, nearly four years. What was the core of the story that you found you could sort of immerse yourself in and that could sustain you for that period of time? Or was it a case of you identifying with the technical issues the challenges of the of the film. Well, I'm ripe to take on that challenge. That that's one thing. Um, the technical challenges to have a breakthrough in filmmaking. Five years ago, I wouldn't be ripe for for this. Just technically, and also doing something so difficult. But it's also thematically. Th- this is a material that examines the power of illusion and and storytelling. Not so much about religion to me. But faith, you know, God, what is illusion? How how much we can deal with that, embrace it? So that's what I do. I'm a storyteller. I'm a filmmaker. I create illusions. So it's about time I, I go through that self-examination. And also the theme to me has a lot to do with losing the zoo, losing the paradise, the innocence. So it's it's kind of a journey of growth of a boy. I'm a very late boomer. So it's it's time that that I take pick up those themes. And something that I really liked about this character of the tiger was that you kind of resist the temptation to anthropomorphize him. Yes, uh, yes. he he doesn't become a humanoid character that's and that happens to be an animal <laughs> animal, but really we start to see him as human. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy you noticed that because that's like the one single most important goal we have with that tiger. It has to look like tiger because that's the book and that we cannot have the tiger, you know, impersonate us. And he becomes, and, he remains dangerous and spontaneous yeah. and, and unpredictable. And respect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, think that's, that's a, yeah. It represents nature uh, in many ways, and it has to be a tiger, not not a human <laughs> projection. Because for most of the film, I think it really works as a series of moments of tension, then release. Um, it's a film about a series of standoffs, and then it's a high drama. It high is, drama, yeah. but at its most pure level, in a way, because you don't have yeah. the dialogue happening. That, yeah, that's that's the uh, key thing. I, I think it's important to me and important. When I pitch that to the studio, why such a movie is possible is it's it's not a survival story. It's, think about it. It's a vast ocean, but they're the boy and the tiger. They're living in a very small lifeboat. It's, it's like a great uh, stage. Mm. It's a very compact uh, situation, compound that they live in. So actually, think about it. It's like Western. It's high drama yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, against the backdrop of a vast uh, you know, environment. A protagonist and an antagonist yeah. in the small frontier town. It's actually stage. Mm. Mm. It's your first film in 3D. I know you have a lot of, you've done a lot of thinking about what 3D means for the language of cinema. Um, can you tell me what, what some of the differences you think between 3D and 2D? For example, in the mise-en-scene, in, in, in actually constructing the elements within the frame I, in a I wide th- shot. Yeah, I think mise-en-scene plays a lot bigger role than montage in 3D against 2D. 
because the volume, the sheer volume, it picks up the depth. It picks up. It's a new language. We don't quite trust it. We don't know it yet. But I could see that the mise en scène, where you put things, how you want to involve audience into that world, is quite different. Actually, I think 3D is very good for drama. It's just for talking heads. Uh, depends that's, on that's where you so put That's so interesting, head. isn't yeah. it? You, most people would say it's an action movie kind no, of no, innovation. No, no, I think it's, uh, it's really a dramatic tool. So uh, I'll tell you one thing. Many times when I stay close to the boy, uh, actor, and I watch a uh, 2D monitor next to the camera, so I, co- I coach him sometimes. When I go back to the control booth, uh, watch the 3D, I have to come back and reduce his performance. With the 3D, you almost want your actor to act with their thoughts. You know, any little uh, action was seems to be overacting. Um, yeah, it's it's a new new illusion. Ang Lee, Life of Pi is rated PG and out New Year's Day. Here on RN, you're listening to Movie Time with Jason DeRosso. Julie Rigg is on leave, but before heading off, she recorded an interview with film scholar Mark Cousins, who's made a series of documentaries that are set to air next month on SBS2 called The Story of Film. It's his attempt to trace the development of cinema and engage with the idea of a film canon, with a particular interest in spreading the net as far and as wide as possible across the different global cinematic traditions. This interview is the precursor to a panel discussion on the cinematic canon that will be airing next week in the first of our Movie Time summer series. So here's Julie with Mark. Mark Cousins, congratulations. It's a fabulous series, the story Thank of you. film. Thank you so Quite much. mind-blowing. and um, I mean, partly it's rediscovering the pleasures of films you've seen, partly it's finding ones yes. you haven't seen. And then, of course, there's your commentary, that kind of little Belfast... <laughs> whisper, seductive Gaelic whisper in one's ear while, while you, you lead us through all that. Where did you get such a monumental ambition? It's a good question. I think, you know, in the present day, every time you go online, the world is full of bloggers uh, and people giving their opinions on things and everything. You know, we're in the era of opinion post a, a, a kind of postmodern time and I just wanted to try and do something more rigorous and so I guess that's where the ambition came from yeah but I mean it's pretty pretty mind-boggling really <laughs> because it's not a story of cinema you called it the story of, of cinema I know I wish that, I wish there was a word in the English language is ah which means one of an infinite number and the means the only one I wish there was a word that meant one of few and then you know I would have used that. I would have called it that kind of history of cinema. Mm. But I'd rather, I'd rather say, look, this isn't just another tread. You know, this is something a bit more substantial, and that's why I said the. I know that'll annoy people, but yeah, because but. really, um, although it's an incredible effort in in um, almost circumnavigating <laughs> the yes. globe, we yeah. do, do not have indigenous uh, Inuit cinema at the top, Indeed. and we or uh, indigenous Australian cinema at the bottom. or Irish or Irish. Okay, where I come from. But but surely, philosophically, one starts 
from where where you know. And it, it seems to me still that did you kind of start from the cinema of Europe as well as the cinema of Hollywood and then kind of work outwards? So <laughs> literally, geographically, uh, was that true? How did you do it? No, it's it's not, to be honest. You know, I did... I. I really wanted to decenter things, and in my own decenter Hollywood, put it to to the side rather than the centre. Decenter Bollywood. The very first filming we did was in Africa, and uh, there is the the longest film clip is an African film clip. The longest sequence, a sort of country sequence, is about uh, the films of Iran in the nineties, for example. So I I I just don't feel that I start from Europe. If anything, I'm slightly hard on Europe. If anything, you know, I've been in France recently showing the story of film and there's no Eric Romer and there's no Jacques Rivette and the French probably feel slightly hard done by, done to by this, you know. So I don't think it's Eurocentric, you know. I think that I've travelled too much. I've spent too much time in the deserts of Iran and the mountains of Turkey and the and the beaches of West Africa, you know, to, to have that Eurocentricity. There are other problems, but that's not one of them. I suspect. What are the other problems? I think the main problem is um, there, there are areas like Balkan cinema, which I don't get into. I don't look at Greek cinema very much uh, or former Yugoslav cinema. That kind of area I'm not great on. I'm not... I haven't done enough on Korean cinema, for example. Yeah, there isn't I noted a, that. Yeah. yeah, there isn't there isn't very much on. I think there's almost nothing on Filipino cinema, which is a big loss. Um, so that's a problem, you know. And we had to. The first edit, the first cut was four hours longer, and we had to cut four hours out, and there were pains. The you mean it ran nineteen? <laughs> Holy moly! Holy moly! Exactly, that's yeah. the way to put it. Yes. Okay, but is it true, Mark? I once heard someone quote you saying you could tell the history of cinema with five images. <laughs> well, I wonder where that came from. Certainly, um, the Observer magazine here in the UK asked me to choose, I think, 10 images to try and tell a history of cinema. And um, you can I, you can certainly, if you imagine a map, you can put a map of the world, you could put, you could put 10 pins on the map, uh, very, very dis- far apart, these pins, one in Africa, one in America, one in Japan, one in Russia, etc. And from that, you can tell some kind of very stretched, very attenuated uh, story of the movies, a, a quick sketch. Just the way <laughs> what pick- were your ten? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, well, I had um, Shen Nu, the goddess, a, chi- a silent Chinese film, because mm. Chinese films of the 30s were fantastic they and were. Near, near-realist before the near-realist pictures. Um, I had um, Yellen um, from Africa, uh, the the great film by Suleiman Sisse. I had Jaws from America. I had uh, <laughs> I had a moment of innocence, I think, from Iran. I had um, I probably had something like 20th Century, that screwball comedy from Howard Hawks. Probably something from Howard Hawks to represent the studioness of the American studio system. Things right. like that, you know, diverse and everything. But I yeah. like the way you take, and, and this is the, the centrepiece of your whole idea, is that, um, you know, artists build on the work of other artists. Yes, yes. And so you take certain images and you'll do this amazing swoop across <laughs> <laughs> continents, time and geography and say, yes. uh, this director learnt 
<laughs> from yes. that director. I so, love doing that. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> so, so, so your theory is all about, you know, masters or mistresses standing on the shoulders of others yes. in a yes, sense. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, what about convergence? Surely what happens at various times is that in different parts of the world uninfluenced by each other, Absolutely. people come up with the same things. I mean, any history of art or technology would tell you that. Absolutely, that's true. Um, that's that's harder to historicise. That's harder to to show a kind of where there are no causal links between things and that's more mysterious but absolutely it's true and also there are people like famously Japan we didn't really in the west see much Japanese cinema until the mid 50s but Japan was had was if anything making the best films in the world in the 30s and 40s and and so they were doing their own thing oblivious perhaps to what we were doing and vice versa so that's one of the tragedies of film history that that people aren't always plugged into each other's work and each other's art, but you're quite right. There are also mysterious coincidences of ideas and imagery, and that's wonderful, and that's something that's beyond my ability to explain, obviously. You know, that, you I know, mean, that another example is, is, you know, is, is from a European perspective, uh, the Italians came up with neorealism, you know, post-war, yes. no, no money for film, Untrained yes. actors shot shot in natural light in the streets, but in fact, people were doing it in India. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's strongly what I argue in the story of film that they were doing it in India and in Japan. But most of the critics who wrote the history of cinema um, and, uh, were European or Americans, and therefore they saw it in those Italian films first. Mm. One last question: the canon. I've come to be very suspicious of the canon. I mean, the the obvious, uh, you know, ready remark is that it's um, a sort of reference book for dead white males or, yes. or elderly white males, and it has yes. excluded a lot of people. I agree. The, the, the traditional canon of cinema has been mostly um, white males telling the history of white male directors. Um, and I have revised, I have tried to revise that, not for the sake of revisionism. I'd like to say that strongly. I'm not just a, a punky, destruct destructive guy who wants to shake things up. You know, I, I've tried to revise the traditional canon and come up with a new, more truthful or radical canon, simply because the old one had so many massive holes in it. And I also really agree that in an ideal world, canons are very dodgy ideas, that there's a kind of list of greatness. However, I see them as a kind of a tool, a kind of Trojan horse to smuggle into the popular discourse and popular conversation films that simply should be in there. If, as we sit with our friends and talk about The Godfather or if we talk about Jaws, there are so many films in the world that are just as brilliant, just as important, that should also uh, pop up in that kind of talk in a bar room or around a dinner table. And so the story of film and the and my canon is trying to get though to drag those other films from around the world into our popular conversation. Once we're already once we're having that conversation, then I'm delighted to back off and and or be challenged or dismissed and and have people introduce their own films and their own discussions about film. But it, I think we're so far behind in what we know about cinema that the story of film is an attempt just to update that a bit. 
Film scholar and filmmaker Mark Cousins speaking to Julie Rigg there. The 15-part series The Story of Film starts on January the 8th on SBS2. We'll put a link on our website. That's at abc.net.au slash rn slash movie time. That's it for the show. Thanks to Judy Rapley and Mark Don for technical production. I'm Jason DeRosso wishing you a happy and safe holiday season and enjoy a movie.